software is broken, but it can be fixed, TestDouble's superpower is improving how the world builds software by building both great software and great teams. And you can help. TestDouble is hiring empathetic senior software engineers and DevOps engineers. We work in Ruby, JavaScript, Elixir, and a lot more. TestDouble trusts developers with autonomy and flexibility at a remote 100% employee-owned software consulting agency. Looking for more challenges? Enjoy lots of variety while working with the best teams in tech as a developer consultant at TestDouble. Find out more and check out remote openings at link.testdouble.com slash greater. That's link.testdouble.com slash greater. Welcome to episode 263 of Greater Than Code. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with Casey Watts. Hi, I'm Casey, and we're both here with our guest today, Kat Sweet. Hi, Kat. Hi, John. Hi, Casey. Well, Kat Sweet is a security professional who specializes in security education and engagement. She currently works at HubSpot, building out their employee security awareness program, and is also active in their disability ERG employee resource group. Since 2017, she has served on the staff of the security conference B-Sides Las Vegas, co-leading their lockpick village. Her other superpower is terrible puns, or if they're printed on paper, she gave me this one, terrible puns, <laughs> like written paper. Anyway, welcome, Kat. So glad to have you. Thanks. I'm happy um, to be here. Let's kick it off with our question. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? <laughs> Well, as I was saying uh, to both of y'all before the show started, I, I was like thinking I'm going to do a really serious, like skillful superpower that makes me sound smart uh, because that's what a lot of other people did in theirs. Like, I don't know, something like I'm a connector or I am good at cross-pollination. Then I realized like, no, <laughs> like it or not, terrible puns are my actual superpower. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well just embrace it. I think... As far as where I acquired it, probably a mix of forces. Having a dad who uh, was the king of dad puns certainly helped. And actually, my my dad's whole extended family is really into terrible puns as well. We have biweekly Zoom calls, and they just turn into everyone telling dad jokes sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think it also... Uh, probably helps that, I don't know, having ADHD, my brain hops around a lot. And so sometimes makes connections in weird places. And sometimes that happens with language. And there were probably some also, also some amount of influences just growing up, I don't know, listening to Weird Al, who gets punny in his parodies. And, oh, and Carlos from the Magic School Bus. Mm-hmm. Role models. I agree. Me too. <laughs> Indeed. So now I'm a pundit. I've got a pun counter going in my head. It just went ding. ding. <laughs> They've only gotten worse during the pandemic. Oh, ding. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll keep it up. We'll see. <laughs> um, I never thought of the overlap of puns and ADHD. I wonder if there's any like study showing if it does correlate. It sounds right. It sounds right to me. 
Yeah, that sounds like a thing. I have absolutely no idea. But yeah, I don't know. Something to do with divergent thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on board with that. Sometimes I hang out in the channels on Slack that are like hashtag puns or hashtag dad jokes. Are you in any of those? What's the first one that comes to mind for you? Your pun community online. Oh, yeah. So actually at work, I joined my current role in August. And during the first week, aside from my regular team channels, I had three orders of business. I found the queer ERG Slack channel. I found the disability ERG Slack channel. And I found the dad jokes channel. (laughs) (laughs) That That was it. And... A couple of jobs ago when I worked at Duo Security, I've been told that some of them who are still there are still talking about my puns because we would get <laughs> pretty bad pun threads going in the in the Slack channels there. What a good reputation. Yeah. Good, bad, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I kind of the decent as a form of humor that's safe for work goes to because like it's generally hard to, I guess, punch down with them. Other than the fact that everyone's getting punched was a really bad pun, but they're generally an equalizing force. <laughs> yeah, I love that concept. Can you explain to our listeners punching down? Um, so this is now the Great British Bake Off and we're talking about bread. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think um, in humor, a lot of times, sometimes people talk about punching up versus punching down in terms of who is actually in on the joke when you're trying to be funny. Are you poking fun at people who are more marginalized than you? Or are you poking at the people with a ton of privilege? And I know it's not always an, an even concept because obviously, you know, inter- intersectionality is a thing and mm-hmm. it's not just a lin- pr- privilege isn't a linear thing, but generally, you know, like what comes to mind a lot is like, I don't know, like, you know, white comedians making fun of how black people talk or like, men comedians making rape jokes at women's expense or something like that. Um, like who's, who's actually being punched. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously you know, it, I like, you know, ideally you don't want to punch anyone, but you know, that, that whole concept of like, where's the humor directed and is it contributing to marginalization? Right. Right. And I guess puns aren't really punching <laughs> at all. Yeah. Ding, ding. There goes the pun <laughs> counter. <laughs> Yeah, the only thing I have to be mindful of too is like not over relying on them. And my good, like my current role is uh, in a very global company. So even though all employees speak English to some extent, English isn't everyone's first language. And there are going to be some things that fly over people's heads. So I don't want to use that exclusively as a way to connect with people. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's so, so specific to culture even mm-hmm. right because i would imagine even uk english would have a whole gray area where the the, the puns may not land and, and vice versa oh totally. um, just humor in general yeah. is so different in every single culture yeah it's really interesting yeah that reminds me i was actually just today i was i started becoming weirdly aware as i was typing something to one of my indian colleagues and i'm not sure what triggered it but i started being aware of all the like the idioms that i was using in what i was typing and i was like well this is what i would normally say to an american and then i'm just like wait it, is this all going to come through like just i think that that way might lead to madness though if you start trying to analyze every idiom you use as you're speaking but uh it was something that just suddenly popped into my mind that i'm i'm going to try and keep being a little bit more aware of because there's so many ways to miss the mark with communication when you rely on 
obscure idioms or or certain ways of saying things that that aren't nearly as clear as they could be. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that's definitely a thing in like all the corporate speak about doubling down and circling back and parking lots and <laughs> double clicking. <laughs> All of those things. But yeah, that's actually something that like was on my mind recently too with revamping one of the like general security awareness courses that everyone gets is that in the way we talk about how to look for a phishing, like spot a phishing email. And first of all, like one of the things that at least they didn't do was say like, oh, look for programmer or misspelled words. Cause that's like automatically really exclusive to people who whose first language is in English or people who have dyslexia. But I was also thinking like we talk about things like subtle language cues in suspicious emails of our, around like a sense of urgency, like a request being made, like trying to prey on your emotion. And I'm like, how ex- accessible is that, I guess, for people whose first language is English to try and spot a phishing email based on those kind of things? Like how much <laughs> how much is too much to ask of I mean, I, I like opinions about phishing emails or the phishing training anyway, being too much to ask of people to some degree. But yeah, I don't know. There's so much subtlety in it that just is really easy for, for people to lose. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that even, you know, American English speakers yeah. uh, with a lot of experience still have trouble. Like I, I actually... <laughs> I just got apparently caught by one of them, the test phishing emails, but they notified me by sending me an email and saying, you were fished, click here to go to the training. And I'm like, I'm not going to click on that. I, like, I just got fished. <laughs> but, but I think my larger point is like, again, you're talking about so many subtleties of language and interpretation to try and tease these things out. And I'm sure there are a lot of people with a range of, non-typical neurologies where where that sort of thing isn't going to be obvious, even if they are native English speakers. Mm-hmm, exactly. Myself included, having ADHD. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, it's, it's been interesting trying to think through like building out security awareness stuff in my current role and in past roles and having ADHD and just thinking about how ADHD unfriendly a lot of the <laughs> traditional approaches are to all of this. Like even like you were just saying, you got fish, take this training. It seems like the wrong sequence of events because if you're trying to teach someone a concept, you need to not really delay the amount of time in between giving presenting somebody with a piece of information and giving them a chance to commit it to memory. ADHDers have less working memory than neurotypical people to begin with, but for this, that concept kind of goes for everyone. So when you're giving someone training that they might not actually use and practice for several more months until they potentially get fished again, then it becomes just information overload. So that's something that I think about. Another way that I see this playing out in phishing training in particular, but other security awareness stuff is like motivation and reward because we have a sort of less, less amount of intrinsic motivation. Like something had like, I don't know, the motivation and reward system just works differently with people who have trouble hanging on to dopamine, 80 years and other people's various executive dysfunction stuff. So when you're sitting through like security training that's not engaging, that's not particularly novel or challenging or of personal interest, or 
is going to have a very delayed sense of reward rather than something that's immediately gratifying, there's going to be a limitation to how much people will actually learn and be engaged and can actually be detrimental. So I definitely think about stuff like that. This reminds me of a paper I read recently about, I said this on a previous episode too. I guess maybe I should find the paper and dig it up and share it. But um, (laughs) it said, implicit bias awareness training doesn't work at all ever was an original paper. Not that's not what it said, of course, but that's how people read it. And then a follow-up said, mm-hmm. no, boring PowerPoint slide presentations <laughs> that aren't interactive aren't <laughs> but the interactive ones are. Surprise. <laughs> right? That's the thing. That's the thing. Yeah. And like, I think there's also just, I don't know. I remember when I was first getting into security, people were in offices more and like security awareness posters were a big thing. And Who's going to remember that? Who's going to need to know that they need to email security at when they're in the bathroom? (laughs) Stuff like that that's not particularly engaging nor particularly useful in the moment. But yeah, that that DEI paper is an interesting one too. I'll really, I'll have to read that. Do you have experience making some of these trainings more interactive and getting the quicker reward that's not delayed? What, What does that look like for something like phishing or another example? It's a mixed bag. And it's something that I'm still kind of, there's something that I'm figuring out just as we're scaling up because in, in past roles, mostly been in smaller companies. And But one thing that I think people who are building security awareness and security education content for employees miss is the fact that there's a certain amount of like baseline level of interaction and context that you can't really automate away especially for new hires. I know having just gone through the process that onboarding weeks are always kind of information overload, but people are going to at least remember more or be more engaged if they're getting some kind of actual human contact with somebody who they're going to be working with. They got the face, they've got some context for who their security team is and what they do. And they won't just be clicking through a training that's got canned information that has no context to where they're working and really no narrative and no nowhere for them to ask questions. Because I always get really interesting questions every time I give some kind of live security education stuff. People are curious. I think it's important that security education and engagement is really an enhancer to a security program. It can't be carrying all the weight of relationships between the security team and the rest of the company, you're going to get dividends by having ongoing positive relationships with your colleagues that aren't just contact the security team once once a year during training. And even John's email, right? Like the sample test email, which I think is better than not doing it for sure. But that's like a ha ha got you. That's not really relationship building. Necessarily, you got to already have no. It's not, and that's yeah, and that's why I think phishing campaigns are so tricky. I think they're required by you know some compliance frameworks and by cyber cyber insurance frameworks. So some places just have to have them. You can't just say we're not going to run internal phishing campaigns, unfortunately, regardless of whether that's actually the right thing for businesses. But I think the angle should always be how to you know familiarizing people with how to report email like that to the security team and reinforcing psychological safety, not making people feel judged, not making people feel bad, and also not making them sit through training if they get caught because that's not psychological safety either. And it really doesn't 
pay attention to results. Is there interesting? I, I remember I listened to your episode with Eli Holderness. And at some point, uh, one of the hosts mentioned something about like human factors and safety and like safety science on the like evolving nature of, of how like people management happens in the workplace and how there was sort of this old model of humans being a problem to be managed and supervised and well, just controlled and how the sort of new view of organizational psychology and people management is more humans are your source of success. So you need to enable their growth and build them up. And I think a lot of security education approaches are kind of still stuck in that old model almost. Like I've seen progress, but I think a lot of them have a lot of work to do in still being, even if they're not necessarily as like antagonistic or punitive, they still feel sometimes paternalistic. Like humans are like, if I hear the phrase humans are the weakest link one more time, I'm going to table flip. Humans are, first of all, humans are all the links, but also... Uh, it's yep. still sort of it's it's saying like we need to save we need to save humans, which are somehow the security team is not humans. We need to save humans from themselves because they're too incompetent to know what to do. So we need yeah, it's which is a terrible attitude, yeah. and I think it misses the point that first of all, in the security, not everyone is going to become a security expert or hyper vigilant all the time, and that's okay. But what we can do is you know. Focus on the good relationships, focus on making the training we have and need to do somewhat interactive and personal and contextual and let go of the things you can't control. (laughs) Yeah, I think Taylorism is the name for that management style. I think it came around in the 40s and yeah, ruined a lot of lives. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, and, and I think your point about like actually accepting the individual humanity of the people you're trying to influence and work with rather than as, as some sort of big amorphous group of fuck ups <laughs> for lack of a better word, um, yeah. you know, giving them some, some, giving them some credit, giving them like, like you said, something that's not punitive, something somewhere where they don't get punished for their security lapses or forgetting to thing or clicking the link, you know, is going to be a lot more rewarding than, like you said, just making someone sit through training. Like for me, the training I want for, from whatever it was I clicked on is show me the email I clicked on. I will figure out how it tricked me and then I will learn. I don't need a whole yeah. like three hours of video courses or whatever. Like I want to see the, I want to yeah. see the email and, and like that is a much more organic thing than the, well, here's the training for you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, you have to give uh, again, give some people a way to actually yeah. commit it to commit it to memory, get it out of RAM and into yeah. SSD. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I love that. And I think, fortunately, I think some other places are starting to do kind of interesting, innovative approaches. Like um, I have a, my former colleague Kim Burton, who was the security education lead at Duo when I was there, and just uh, moved to Tessie and was gave a webinar recently on doing like the annual security training as like a choose your own adventure, so that people, so that it could be replicated among a wide group of people, but that people could sort of take various security education stuff that was specific to their own role and to their own threat model, and I really liked that. I like being able to give people some amount of personalization and get them actually thinking about what what they're specifically. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. 
And it also makes me think about like, there are undoubtedly things I'm pretty well informed on in security and other things that I'm completely ignorant about. And I'd rather not sit, sit through a training that covers both of those things. Like if there's a way for me to choose my own adventure <laughs> yeah. through it so that I go to the parts where I'm actually learning useful things that again, a, it saves everybody time and B it means I'm not fast forwarding through the video, hoping it for it'll just end and then possibly missing things that are, are actually useful to me. I'm thinking of a concrete example. I always remember and think of and that's links and emails i always hover and look at the url except when i'm on my phone and you can't do that uh i just mm-hmm. i don't know if that's never come up in a training i've seen yeah you can like click and hold but it's harder and i think that speaks to the fact that security teams should lead into putting protections around email security more so than relying entirely on their user base to hover over every single link or like click and hold on their phone or just do nothing when it comes to reporting suspicious emails. There's a lot of decision fatigue that I think security teams still put on people whose job is not security. And I hope that that continues to shift over time. Yeah. I mean, you're bringing up the the talking about management and safety theory that probably came from Rain Hendricks, who was one of our other hosts. Uh, but one of the things he's, he also has mm. talked about uh, in on, I think, probably multiple shows is about setting the environment for the people that makes the safe thing right. easy so that all the defaults roll downhill into safety and, and security rather than, well, here's a level playing field you have to navigate yourself through and there's some potholes and da, 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 and you have to be aware of them and, and constantly on alert and all those things. Whereas if you tilt the field a little bit, you make sure everything runs in the right direction, then the right thing becomes the easy thing and then you win. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's important to put that not only in the like technical defaults, yeah. but also yeah, process yeah. defaults to some degree. One of my colleagues just um, showed me a talk that was, I think, from Epset Kelly. I'll have to dig it up. But um, there was somebody talking about making, like, uh, I guess, threat modeling and anti-abuse sent- uh, mindsets uh, more of a default in product development teams and how they added one single line to their sprint planning. How could this feature potentially be misused by a user? Mm-hmm. And that alone just like got people thinking just that little process change. Yeah, that's beautiful. Right. Yeah. Such a a small thing, but constantly repeated at a low level. It's not yelling at anyone to. Yeah. Yeah. And and even if the the developers and product designers themselves weren't security experts or anti-abuse experts, it would just get them thinking, oh, hey, we should we should reach out to like the trust and safety team. I'm thinking about so many steps and so many of these steps could be hard. The next one here is, is the security team responsive? And that has a lot to do with, are they well-staffed? And is this a priority for them? Oh my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) So many things. It's layers. I'm sure you've heard of this cat, the Swiss cheese model of error prevention. Yep. Defense in depth. (laughs) Um, I like this. I like to bring it up in the podcast too, because a lot of engineers and a lot of non-security people don't know about it. Do you want to explain it? I don't mind. I can. Oh, yeah. Basically that there are going to be holes in every every step of the process or the tech. And so that's why it's important to have this layered approach because uh, over time, even if something gets through the first set of holes, it may not get through a second set where the holes are in different spots. So you end up with a giant stack of Swiss cheese, which is delicious. And you come out with something that's hopefully pretty (laughs) safe. (laughs) 
Yeah. And it's the layers that are the mind blowing thing here is that there can be more than one layer. We don't just need one layer of Swiss cheese on this sandwich, which is mm-hmm. everybody pay attention and don't ever get fished or it's your fault. You can have so right? many more layers than that. It can be a like a grilled cheese, really, really thick grilled <laughs> cheese. Yes. A grilled cheese where the bread is also yes. cheese. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat discussing tech topics, big, small, and strange. Compiler unravels industry topics, trends, and the things you've always wanted to know about tech through interviews with the people who know it best. On their show, you will hear a chorus of perspectives from the diverse communities behind the code. Compiler brings together a curious team of Red Hatters to tackle big questions in tech, like what is technical debt? What are tech hiring managers actually looking for? And do you have to know how to code to get started in open source? I checked out the Should Managers Code episode of Compiler, and I thought it was interesting how the host spoke with Red Hatters who are vocal about what role, if any, that managers should have in code bases and why they often fight to keep their hands on keys for as long as they can. Listen to Compiler on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Our thanks to Compiler for their support. Earlier you mentioned awareness, Kat, as something interesting. Do you want to talk about awareness more as a term and how it relates to this? Oh, yeah. So I... And technically, my, my job title has security awareness in it. But I've the more I've worked in the security space doing like employee security education stuff as part of all of my job. I know language isn't perfect, but I'm kind of of the mindset that awareness isn't a good capture of what my real like mine actually should be doing. Because awareness without behavior change or action is just noise. It's just we're all very aware of things, but... If we don't have an environment that's friendly to us, putting that awareness into some kind of action or engagement yeah. or response, we are just aware and scared. <laughs> yeah, awareness alone just makes us feel bad. We need more than that. Yeah, so I think security awareness is sometimes just a product of a term that got standardized over several years as like, you know, it's in all of the compliance control frameworks, security awareness is a part of it. In just, I don't know, it's a best practice thing. I hope over time it will continue to evolve yeah. as with any other kind of domain. Yeah, I would think that, I think that maybe like security motivation might be a better term for it. I've seen a bunch of different ones used. So I I end up sort of speaking in terms of like, I don't know, security education and engagement is what I'm working on. Security culture is my vision. I've seen... Yeah, I've seen things like security, awareness, behavior, and culture, ABC, things like that. All this to say, like security, not awareness, not being in a vacuum. I like those. This reminds me of a framework I've been thinking about a lot, and I use in some of my DEI workshops. AIDA is Mm -hmm. an acronym, A-I-D-A. The first one's awareness. The last one is action, and the middle is interest and desire. And so the questions I use to frame nice. is like, are they aware of, for example, if they're misgendering someone, that's the, the context I'm using this in mm. a lot. Are they aware of this person's pronouns in the first place? Are they interested in caring about this person? And do they want to do anything about it? And did they do it? Did they use their proper pronouns? Did they correct their actions? 
It's like four stages. I like that. uh, It's used in marketing a lot for like a sales funnel, but I apply it to all sorts of how do you get someone from aware to action? I like that a lot. Yeah, it's been interesting working at a place that makes a product that's more in the sales and marketing space. Definitely learned a lot because a, a couple of previous roles I've had have been with security vendors. And I think one of the interesting ideas that was a new concept to me when I started was this idea of inbound marketing, where instead of like just cold contacting people and telling them, be interested in us, be interested in us, buy our stuff, you sort of generate this reputation as being of good service by, you know, putting out useful, like free nuggets of content, like blog posts and webinars and things, then you get people who are interested based on them knowing that you've got this, that you offer a good perspective, and then they go tell their friend, they are satisfied customers, and they go promote it to people. And I think about this. And I think about this in like, as a as it applies to like security teams and their the services they provide, because you know, the, even though they're internal, t- even though like you know, corporate security teams are internal, they've still got internal customers. Yeah. They've still got like you know, services that they provide for people. And so, by making sure that the security team is visible and accessible, and that the good services that they provide are known, and you've got satisfied customers, and then you they become promoters to the rest of their mm-hmm. teams. Like think about like yeah, security can. T- Definitely learn a lot from the, these sales and marketing models. I can totally imagine the security team being the fun team, the one you go to go work with and do workshops with because they make it so engaging and you want to. You can afford to spend your time on this thing. It can happen. <laughs> oh, yes. You might do it. <laughs> yeah, and I think marketing is a great model for that. Like, it, like marketing sort of has a bad reputation, I think, amongst a, lo- a lot of people because it's done badly and evilly by a lot of people, but it's, it's certainly possible. And I think inbound marketing is one of those ways that, you know, you're engaging, you're spreading awareness, you're letting people select themselves into your service and be, and, you know, bring their interest to you. And if, and, you know, if you can develop that kind of rapport with the employees at your company as, as the security team, like that's, that's everybody wins. Yeah, absolutely. And it can absolutely be done. When I was working at Duo a couple of jobs ago, I was on their security operations team and we were responsible, among other things, for both the like employee security education and being the point of intake, being the people that our colleagues would reach out to with security concerns to security. And it definitely could see those relationships pay off by being visible and being of good service. So now I'm getting my product manager hat on, uh, like team, team management. Yeah. I want to choose the right metrics for a security team that incentivizes letting this marketing kind of approach happen and being the fun team people want to reach out to to have the bigger impact. And probably the high end, the highest metric is like, nobody gets a security breach. But that can't be it's the only one because maybe you'll have a lucky year and maybe you'll have an unlucky. That's not the best one. What other metrics are you That's thinking the thing. about? There's a, there's a lot more that goes into not getting, not getting pwned than how, how, how aware of security people are. There's just way too many factors for that, but yeah, I guess I'm especially interested in the human ones. Like how, how, oh yeah. And I mean, like allowed to do the things, you know, that would be effective, you know, like incentivized and measured and Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I think like a lot of security engagement and education metrics often have like a bit of a longer tail, but I think about not, 
I don't really care so much about like, you know, the click rates for internal phishing campaigns. Cause again, anyone can fall for a fish if it's crafted correctly enough. It's, if it's, if it's subtle enough or if just somebody's distracted or having a bad day, which we never have. It's not like there's a pandemic or anything, but I think about for things that are sort of numbers wise, you know, I think about like how much are people engaging with security teams, mm-hmm. um, not just in terms of like reporting suspicious emails, but how often are they reporting ones that aren't a fish are, aren't a phishing simulation? How often are they, how much are they working with, you know, product security teams when they're building new features and what's the impact of that baseline level? Like before there's, I don't know, formal process for, you know, security reviews, code reviews, threat modeling stuff in place. What does that story look like over time for the product and for product security? So I think there's quite a bit of narrative data involved Mm -hmm. in security education metrics. Yeah, I mean, you could look at inbound interest, like how often are you consulted out of the blue by another team or or even like of the materials you've produced, you know, what's the engagement rates on that? Like that's, I think that's a lower quality one, but I think inbound interest would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, I was, I was thinking to some degree about like, well, how, what's, what kinds of like vulnerabilities are you shipping in your code? Cause I, I think there's, you know, there's never 100% secure code, but I think, I think if you catch some some of the low-hanging fruits earlier on, then sometimes you get an interesting picture of like, okay, security is being infused into into the SDLC at all of these various Swiss cheese checkpoints. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so think about that to some degree. Um, and that's more that's often more of a process thing than a purely an education thing, but again, education's an enhancer to all of these other parts of the security programs. Uh, so in the topics uh, for the show that you had uh, suggested to us, uh, one of the things that stood out to me was something you called dietary accessibility. So can you tell me a little bit more about what that means? So earlier in this year, in the middle of all of this pandemic ridiculousness, I got diagnosed with celiac disease. So fortunately, I guess if there was a time to be diagnosed with, with that, it's, you know, I'm working remotely and nobody's going out to eat really. Oh, I should, I should, I should back up. I think a lot of people know what it is, but um, just in case it's an autoimmune disorder where my body attacks itself when I eat gluten, I've described it in the past as my body thinks that gluten is a nation state adversary named fancy beer. (laughs) Ding one more for the pun counter. I don't know how many we're up to now. I have a random story about a diet I had to do for a while for my health. I have irritable bowel syndrome in my family, and that means we have to follow a really strict diet called the low FODMAP diet. If your tummy hurts a lot, it's something you might look into because it's underdiagnosed. That meant I couldn't have wheat, but not because I had celiac disease. I was not allergic to the protein in wheat flour. I was intolerant to the starch in wheat flour. And so it would bother me a lot. People said, Are you, do you have celiac or not? I was like, no, but I cannot have wheat because the doctor told me so. But no, it's not an allergy. And like, I don't know, my logical brain did not like that question. <laughs> I was like, an invalid question. No, it's not a preference. I prefer to eat bread, but I cannot order my body according to my doctor. <laughs> so you can't have the starch and I can't have the protein. So together we can Separate just like it. split all of the wheat molecules in the uh-huh. world and eat them. <laughs> That's fair. Like, I literally made gluten-free yeah. bread. With gluten. <laughs> like I got all the gluten-free starches and then the gluten from the wheat and I didn't have the starch in the wheat and it did not upset my stomach. 
Yeah, oh, I've got a dairy sensitivity, but it's not lactose. It's casein. So it's the protein in the dairy. That's protein. Uh-huh. Oh, interesting. I apologize yeah. on behalf of all the casein. <laughs> the casein. Yeah. Who let casein? Ding. <laughs> Ding. No, but it's made me think a lot about like, as I was, first of all, it's just, I didn't fully appreciate until I was going through it firsthand, the amount of cognitive overload that just goes into living with it every day. And to speaking of constant state of hypervigilance, like it took a while for that to be for, I don't know, me to operationalize to my, my new life. That's going to be my reality for the rest of my life now. Cause it was just like, uh, can I eat this? Can I eat that? All of that. And something that at least helps ease me out of this like initial just overwhelm and grieving period was sort of like tying some of the stuff that I was dealing with back to like, how would I do this in my, how would I approach this if this were a security education and security awareness kind of thing? Because it's a new thing. It's a new concept and it's a thing that is unfamiliar and not everyone is an expert in it. So I'm like, how would I treat myself as the person who's, not an expert in it yet. So I, again, went, tried to get myself back to some of those same concepts of like, okay, let's not get stuck in FUD mode. Let's think about what are some of the actual facts versus what's scaremongering. I don't need to know how much my rate of my risk of colon cancer is increased because that's not helpful for me to actually be able to go about mm-hmm. my day. I need to know like, what are the gluten-free brands of chips? Because <laughs> that's critical infrastructure. I love this parallel. This is so cool. And so I thought about like to, to, I mentioned earlier, like decision fatigue as a security issue. And so I thought about like, how, how can I reduce the decision fatigue and not get stuck? Like just reading all the labels on foods and stuff. So what are the shortcuts I can take? So some of those were like, okay, let me learn to recognize the labels, like what the labels mean of like, a certified gluten-free logo and also just eat a lot of things that would never have touched gluten to begin with, like, you know, plain raw meat, plain potatoes, mm-hmm. plain vegetables, things like that. So just anything to sort of take the cognitive load down a little bit because it was never going to be zero. So it's interesting, like sometimes, I don't know, I, I have tons of different interests and I'm always interested in people's perspective outside of security. So I like a lot of that stuff influences the way I think about security, but Sometimes the way I think about security also ends up influencing other stuff in my life. So, yeah, I think that's brilliant. And interesting use, to connect with the patterns you know and you're comfortable with and apply them. Other exactly. Places. A lot of really cool ideas come from. Yeah. The yeah. And go for harm reduction, not nothing. Cause like we don't live in a gluten free world. Like I can try to make myself as safe True. as possible, but at some point, my gut may suffer a data breach. And <laughs> when I do, it should be blameless and just work on getting myself recovered and trying. Again. Yeah. I mean, thinking about it as like a threat model, right? There's, there's this gluten out there and it's, some of it's obvious, some of it's yeah. not obvious. What am I putting in place so that I spot, the, you know, get, get that 95th percentile or whatever it is that, you know, that you can think of it that way. I like that. Exactly. Yeah, it's inter- it's an interesting tie to threat modeling how like the same people, even if people have the same like thing that they can't eat, they may still have a different threat model. They may like like how bo- we both had to avoid wheat, but for different reasons and with different side effects if, if we ate it and mm-hmm. things like that. 
Yeah. I love these parallels. I imagine you went into some of these in that talk at DisinfoSec. Is that right? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So DisinfoSec is a virtual conference uh, in its second year of existence, specifically highlighting disabled speakers in the InfoSec community run by Kim Crawley, um, who's a blogger for Hack the Box. And there was a really interesting lineup of talks this year. Some people, I think about half of them touched on um, neurodiversity and various aspects of security through lenses of being autistic and ADHD, um, which is really cool. For mine, I focused on those of us who have disability-related dietary restrictions and how that affects our life in the tech workplace, where compared to a lot of other places I've worked there's a lot of free food on the company mm-hmm. dime uh, hanging around. And there's a lot of use of food as a way to build connection and build community. Yeah, and, and a lot so of stuff a lot I, of people can't eat. I'm with you. Uh-huh. Yeah. It just like took stock of like of all of the times that, you know, I would take people out for lunch interviews, go out to dinner with colleagues when they're in town, all of these things like snacks in the office just there not being a bathroom on the same floor as me for multiple jobs where I worked, (laughs) things like that. So I really wanted to, the thing that I wanted to highlight in that talk in general was systemic level accommodations to be made for people with, you know, be they like celiac, IBS, uh, food allergies, diabetes, rather than relying on people individually requesting accommodations is sort of, you know, universal design model where you've got to have make sure that your your workplace is by default, you know, set up to accommodate people with a wide range of disabilities, uh, including dietary needs. And a lot of times it doesn't come down to even feeding them, it comes down to, you know, making sure their health insurance is good, making sure people can work remotely, mm-hmm. making sure that higher levels of Swiss cheese on that. They're very Yeah, low. the levels of Swiss cheese, a lot of stuff cascades from like lunch interviews, making sure that if you do them uh, at all, that you're really flexible about them. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely relate to like the being able to work from home, which I've done for the last decade or more has been huge Mm -hmm. uh, for being able to have a solid control of my diet, right? Because it's really easy to have all the right things around for lunch rather than Oh, I've only got half an hour. I can run out to the sub shop and I'll just deal with the consequences, uh, you know, because that's what's nearby versus or like trying to bring food into the office and keep it in the fridge or the free. Like that's a whole mess. So just like like you said, good health insurance, working from home. Th- these are things that allow for all sorts of different disabilities to be taken care of so well yeah. that you don't like that's like the base. That's table stakes. To for to be exactly. for that kind of inclusion exactly yeah exactly yeah and I think what sometimes gets missed is that even there are other things that I need to like the ability to just sometimes lay down and the ability to be close to a bathroom and things that are not food related but definitely are my reality yeah. <laughs> and companies went out too yeah. by accommodating you they get all of your expertise and skills and puns. <laughs> In exchange for flexibility, they get puns. <laughs> and I still make puns about gluten and wheat and rye and barley, even though I can't eat them anymore. Th- that will never go away. They just keep rising. Wheat for it. <laughs> wheat for it. <laughs> That's just my rye sense of humor. All right. We're getting near end of time for today. this point, let's talk about reflections and plugs. I can go first. I think the thing that's definitely sticking with me is is thinking about 
like the internal teams relating to other internal teams at a company as as a marketing issue. Like security is, is obviously one where you need to have that relationship with pretty much every team. But I'm thinking all sorts of all you know, all the way around like development, DevOps, yeah, QA, ever like everyone can think this way and probably gain something from it. As a like what are we presenting to the rest of the company? What is our interface? And how do we bring more things to it such that people like working with our interface a lot so that like we have great relationships with the rest of the team. And I, I think I'm going to keep thinking about that for a while. I'll share a reflection. I liked noticing that those phishing emails can cause harm to people and they can feel bad and then make them less receptive. And I've always been a fan of them overall, but thinking about that impact, I might even be the one to say, been the one to say that, but it was still surprising to me when I came out of my mouth. It's like, Oh yeah, it hurts people in a way too. And we don't have to have that painful experience to teach people. It can be done in a safer environment. And I wonder what else we can do for training of things like that to make it more positive and less negative. I'm going to be thinking on that. Yeah. And I wrote down Ida, awareness, interest, desire, and action. Did I get that right? I'm definitely going to look into that. I think that's a great model for education of all kinds. If you want to go even deeper, there's like six and seven tier models on the Wikipedia page. Links to a bunch of them. That's just the most common. Awesome. For plugs, I just want to plug some homework for you all. Everyone listening, there's this unconscious bias training that works article that I've mentioned twice now. I hope you get to read that. And I guess the Ida, it'll be in the show notes for sure. And then the Wikipedia page for Ida marketing, just so you have a spot to look it up if you forget about it. Try to apply that to situations. That's your homework. I think something that I've plugged on Twitter quite a bit over the years um, and that I like a lot when we were talking about um, the language that we use earlier, I'm a huge fan of the Responsible Communication Style Guide, which was put out by the Recompiler, which is a feminist activist hacker publication. And so they've got guides on, you know, words to avoid, words to use instead for, you know, when talking about race, gender, class, health, disability status, and it's written for a tech audience. And I really like that as a resource for using inclusive language. Yeah, it's great stuff. I love it. All right. Thanks so much for coming on our show today, Kat. 